So I'll be reading um, this morning's passage from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And so we've been journeying through Philippians in this last while. Um, Spencer started, started us off this year in January preaching about pressing on towards the goal, as Paul talks about in this letter. And he talked about, and Spencer challenged us to look at how well we abide in him and how well we let others into our journey of pressing on towards the goal of running that race. And then we then journeyed into chapter 2, where Gary talked about the hymn that is found in verses 1 to 11. And this is basically where Paul sums up the gospel, the ultimate good news, that Jesus, who willingly poured himself out, did not even consider the status he had and became human. And he not only did this to save us, but to serve and help us by learning how we struggle and how we feel. Last week, Steve talked about being lights in the world. Christ's example of putting others before himself shows us how we serve and how we can be different in this world. And he shows us how we can be different so that we stick out. And Paul frames our passage today with good news. So in our passage today, he starts with the encouragement to rejoice in the Lord because it's the Lord And it's our focus there that should be there at all times. But then he then moves on to a warning, a warning against those who insist on Gentile circumcision. And Paul has some choice words for those who say that this is the only way to be in good standing with God. And he then finishes with more good news, that it's God's faithfulness that gives us the best kind of righteousness. It's righteousness righteousness that is by faith, and not anything one can do. 
And it's from this good news that Paul urges all to know Christ by participating in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Being like Christ in his death helps us to serve and love like Christ did. So before we dive in, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your gift, your faithfulness, that gives us the best kind of righteousness, as Paul puts it. It's a a righteousness that's apart from what we can do, but it's a righteousness purely based on your love for us. It's what you've done to make us right with you. And so, Father, we thank you. And it's out of this place that we want to worship you, we want to hear from you. And so, Father, open our hearts and ears to your word. Speak to us in places that we didn't think we needed speaking to. And, Father, we know that you meet us here. And we open our ears and hearts in expectation um, for you to encourage and bless us this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to go back a bit to last week when Steve talked about kind of the different versions of the Bible and kind of the different headings that sometimes will come out depending on the version. And so I found that really interesting. And so when I looked at up this particular section of our passage today, I looked at all the different versions and the different headings right before it. So the NLT has the heading, The Priceless Value of Knowing Christ. The ESV, or I think it was called the Yoda version, right, Steve? (laughs) The Yoda version. The ESV says, um, righteousness through faith in Christ. The NRSV says, breaking with the past. The NIV says, no confidence in the flesh, which is my personal favorite because it tells us where our confidence shouldn't be. And so Paul begins this section with the encouragement to rejoice in the Lord. So rejoicing is the good news. We are able to rejoice in him because our confidence can rest with him. So at this point, Paul has mentioned the word rejoice five times in his letter. And it's in this context that we, um, that we can rejoice and we can glor- be rejoicing that Christ is preached and that people know, can be known, um, he can be known to them. And so he, Paul has mentioned it five times, but it was always in the context of rejoicing with each other. But here in verse 1 of chapter 3, rejoice is being mentioned a sixth time, but it's the first time that it's in the context of rejoicing in the Lord. And this takes the reader way back to the language of the Psalms, where it is often spoken of to rejoice in the Lord even in times of lament and also in times of praise. So in that same way, Paul asserted to the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord despite what was happening all around them. So Gordon Fee, who's a professor at Regent College, says that Paul encourages them to set their focus above themselves and their sufferings by active participation in singing and praising to to Christ. And so this is the framework. This builds the framework to what Paul would continue to say. It helps bring the focus back to God, despite what is happening. And so this is interesting, I find, that Paul used the word rejoice right before he dives into a pretty stern warning. He uses this word um, before he um, yeah, warns the Philippians of something that's pretty, uh, where he uses strong language. So why would Paul choose this wording? 
To answer this question, let's consider Paul's situation as he's writing this letter. If we remember, he's writing from prison in Rome, and he's far from those he's writing to. He's upset about what's happening, what's being taught. The Jews who insist that circumcision and the law are the things that save you. He's upset that these opponents are insisting that salvation is based on human effort and obedience to the law. Because that takes away from the goodness of Christ, who has sacrificed all to offer the true way to life. So that's why he is so upset. So imagine how all of this and how discouraging it would have felt for Paul to be writing from prison, to be trapped behind bars when others were out there leading people astray. And so it's out of this place that Paul still chooses to find joy in the foundation of the Lord. He's actively singing and praising Christ from his prison cell. And so for Paul, rejoicing in the Lord not only keeps your focus on God, it's a safeguard for their souls, as he mentions, because it keeps their focus on Christ. In other words, it's a way of protecting themselves in the midst of what is happening all around. And so that's why Paul is so adamant about rejoicing. That's why he mentions it so many times in this letter. Rejoicing protected the people from the dissension, the false teachings, the conceit, the judgment from the Jews. And so that, that is why his appeal to rejoice happens so frequently. And we'll see him repeat this again in Philippians 4, verse 4. He talks about rejoicing once again. And so it is with this lens that Paul um, frames this section of the passage. And speaking of rejoicing, um, that is something in my journey that I have had, found it hard to do. Um, just growing up in my past, I've, I've had always been taught to rely upon myself. Um, just my parents didn't know Christ growing up. And so I had always just grown up with the notion of you have to depend on yourself. You can't depend on anyone else. You make your own way. And this is how I kind of grew up into my teen years. And it wasn't until um, my dad moved here, he got transferred to Calgary. We grew up in Ontario. And uh, he got transferred here to Calgary alone first because we were all finishing up school. And a friend here brought him to church. And um, I remember the phone call after I had gone to church for a few months for my dad. And some of you might have heard this before, but he had phoned and he said, you know, I, I've become a Christian now. Um, I have found this faith in God that I can depend on other than myself, and he's changed my life. And, and I remember hearing those words and being super curious about the God who could change my dad in this way. Um, just growing up knowing, well, you, you were saying just depend on yourself. You're the only person you can depend on. And so that was a really neat shift for my dad, and that caused me to be curious. And so, of course, when we moved here to join him, we had started going to church, and, and I found out and met God and realized what this was all about. And so this dependence on, on God other and not on me. And so this term rejoice has always, throughout my journey um, through Christ, it, with Christ, it's been kind of a, a thing that I've had to work through time and time again. Um, in my immaturity, I thought you could only rejoice in the Lord when he gave you what you wanted, or when things were going well, or when there wasn't trouble, or when I wasn't going through pain. And that was the only time you could rejoice in him, because, well, pain is painful, and so how can you rejoice? And so in my immaturity, I had always thought that 
um, because bad things happened, I can't really rejoice in him. And so therefore, I just I have to keep depending on myself and not really trust him for things and for blessings. And so I had lived my life with this notion for a little bit, and, and I realized that it has effects on me even today. Um, so some of you might know that I'm, I'm at a job that, that um, I'm a manager at a home care company, and so it's, it's often a pretty negative space. I go in, um, just if you think about the odds, I, I, we service a few thousand clients, we uh, oversee a few hundred caregivers, and so the, the idea that some one person at any point in time will be unhappy is pretty likely. And so I, I find that my work is a, is a pretty negative place. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm very thankful for my job. I'm thankful for the opportunities. However, I've been thinking lately it's been a very negative spot. I, I never leave work thinking that I've done any good because someone is always unhappy. And that's just the nature of it. And so because of this role, I've just kind of gone in day in, day out, day in. And it's been about it's been a long journey and and I've just kind of put myself back in that space every day every week and um and I think through just my my um belief of just that we can't rejoice and we can't trust in him for good things I've kind of put my desire to dream for something better aside I've just kind of accepted that this is you know, this is where I'm to be, and for me to think of something better is um, is hard. And so I think I've just depended on myself um, and just said, well, this is this is my lot. And not that it's a bad lot. I, I don't want to sound like I'm spoiled or anything, but and not that it's bad by any means. But I've come to think that, well, is there more that God would want for me? Is there some other place or some other thing that I could be doing where I could glorify Him more? And so that this has been. Um, a hard space for me that I'm still working through, and and I just kind of title it as my my inability to dream or my inability to want more, and so that's something I'm still still working through. But for Paul, um, rejoicing in the Lord is is so foundational that he can do it even in the midst of of being in prison and being beaten or whatever the circumstance may be. And so it's this framework that he tells the Philippians to rejoice. And so as we move on to the next verses, so he sets up the stage for us, for the Philippians to rejoice. He then moves on to the stern warning to watch out for the dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul warns the Jews who insisted that Gentiles had to be circumcised. Because to the Jews, the Gentiles were the ones who were a lesser person because they weren't circumcised. They were often, the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as dogs because they were lesser people. And so dogs in the day of the ancient times were not the same as today, the warm, furry, fuzzy, awesome companions that we think of as we think of dogs. And back in the day, dogs were unclean. They were just lowest of the low. And so it's interesting that because the Jews would use this term to refer to some Gentiles, that Paul hurls this thought, this, this very term back at the people who think this way. So he uses the term dogs. And he calls them mutilators of the flesh, people who insist on circumcision as the way to God. 
And so these people had, who were insisting this had a pride in their own actions. They had their ability was in themselves to keep the law. They relied upon themselves to become righteous, and they boasted in themselves. And so for them, circumcision was what made people right with God. Circumcision for the Jews became a wall that separated them from other people because they were the right ones and people who were not circumcised were lesser. So this became a wall of separation for the Jews. And so when we look at this passage, it's easy for us to say here today that, oh, well, I would never think like that. I would never think that someone that's um, not circumcised wouldn't be saved. That's not me. However, I think it's valuable for us to pause and reflect this morning. What is our version of circumcision? So what walls have we let come up in between us and others? So an example might be, oh, that person doesn't eat the same kind of food as I do. I can't, I can't relate to them. Or that person doesn't worship the same way I do. I, can't, I don't have anything in common with them. These could be modern-day versions of circumcision for the Jews. So I just want us to ponder that thought this morning, if there's something in our hearts that God's asking us to reflect on, something that might separate us from others. So biblical scholar Gerald Hawthorne states in his commentary, such reliance that these Jews have, this self-reliance, is a self-reliance and it tends to obscure the need for God. And so when we're busy relying on our own actions and thinking that we are the ones that can bring us closer to God, that leaves very little room for God to work. That just gives him this tiny little corner of our heart. And so when we're busy, why Paul was so adamant, when we're busy relying on ourselves to find salvation and relationship with God, then God can't work. So circumcision originally was to be understood as a symbol of the covenant relationship with God. But over time, the Jews started seeing circumcision as the only way to achieve a right standing with God. And so God's intention was always that circumcision would be partnered with a circumcision of the heart. That it would be partnered with a heart that was devoted to him for both and a love for people for both Jew and Gentile. So circumcision was to be understood as an action that came out of a changed heart. And therefore, circumcision in the flesh was meant to symbolize a circumcised heart, a heart that trusted in God. And it was meant to be a whole package, and yet some Jews only took part of it, missing out on the joy of realizing that it's his faithfulness to the covenant that allows them a way to him. And this is the circumcision that Paul speaks on in verse 3. That is, those who serve God by his spirit. And that is serving by being like him, having a changed heart, and boasting in Christ, not the flesh. And this has links to Jeremiah when he spoke in his prophecies in Jeremiah 9. And so I'll read that out, verses 23 to 26. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, 
that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. And so the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. So circumcision in the flesh means nothing if one is uncircumcised in the heart. And so for Paul, the path to true life, the path to knowing Christ, is to boast in his faithfulness. Boasting in Christ means that you know him. You've been circumcised in your heart, and you've made space to truly see God there. When you know God and see him in your heart, you know that there is much to boast about. Once you know him, you know that there is so much to boast about in Christ only. And that, for Paul, is the path to true life. And he is so adamant that people get that. So after setting this section up, after Paul just sets up this whole case for boasting in Christ, and uh, he talks about where your confidence lies, then Paul goes on to speak about um, his credentials. And so when I think about this in the flow of this, in verses 4 to 6, we see that Paul talks about, well, we're supposed to boast in Christ, but if anyone can boast in themselves, it would be me. And so this seems like such a juxtaposition because he sets up all this thing about boasting in him, but yet, you know, look at me. If anyone can boast, I could. And so that just seems um, comical to me of why he would do that. So we we see in verses 4 to 6, he goes into detail his own accomplishments or things of his flesh. And I find this amusing because of just how different it is. Um, He says in verse 4, I have myself have reasons for such confidence. So it's in me that I can have confidence. And so then Paul goes on to list and state how he can top them all. Anything that they thought had going for them, he had more of. And so he would say, he'd make this list. Circumcision, well, I was circumcised. Knowing the law, well, I'm, I was a huge study of the law. I know it inside and out. Being zealous. Well, I persecuted Christians. I top you all. Um, Anything that they can be boasting of, he's been there and done that even more. And so with this impressive list for Paul, it would be easy to boast in his own accomplishments. It would be easy to boast in his own status. And this reminds me actually of um, a YouTube channel that Gary's been watching lately. So Gary lately has been into this whole emergency preparedness thing. And so he's been watching video upon video about, you know, what if, you know, we were stuck and we didn't have any food for three days? Would we have enough to survive? And so he's been into this and this whole, like, we need to make sure that we can rely upon ourselves when there's a catastrophe. <laughs> um, but, and so he's been watching this YouTube channel of this guy named Sean James. And Sean is this amazing guy. He used to be this high-rolling bank person in the city, had a great job, but he decided to take a shift in life, and um, he quit his job. He bought some land in the wilderness, and he decided to build 
a cabin onto it. And so what's amazing about this guy is that he built his cabin from scratch without using any power tools. And so he just has his handsaw. You see him day after day. Like he goes through kind of his journey and he handsaws these logs and just builds them into this cabin. And um, it's pretty amazing. And he shows you how to survive, how to like do this, how to get food, all this stuff. Um, and it's pretty amazing. Although one thing that um, really bothered me, though, about, about him is that he calls his channel My Self-Reliance. And you can see that it's this big thing. It's his channel. He has this huge plaque of, on his front door that says My Self-Reliance as a decoration. And, and to me, I thought that was pretty arrogant. Like, oh, right, My Self-Reliance as in you're the one who planted the trees and you're the one who made it rain so the trees could grow so that you could cut them down for your cabin, right? So, yeah, My Self-Reliance, right? So that, and so that kind of really bugged me. Um, but one turning point for me was there was this episode where he reached one million viewers and he goes on to this um, YouTube and he makes he thanks everybody for watching his channel. He thanks everyone for um, subscribing and all this stuff and then he says this thing. He says, I realize that it's a community of people that gets me to where I am today. And so he doesn't go as far to say, well, maybe it's not my self-reliance, which I would have hoped he said, but he acknowledges that it's a community of people that's gotten to him to where he was today. And so as qualified as this person was to survive in the wilderness, he still realized that he couldn't rely on himself at the end of the day. So another modern day example would be when I think of someone who's credentialed, who, you know, thinking of Paul and his credentials is uh, our very own Rick Strangway. And so if you think of Rick Strangway, you know, his flowing locks of hair, his, his height, um, you know, his cool car, his two doctorates, and just you guys all know him and how he's so amazingly relational, he would be somebody I would think would be pretty credentialed. And so forgive me, I was missing Rick and Cream this week, and so when I miss people, I tend to poke fun at them. So forgive me. <laughs> but just thinking about all these people who have credentials, these people who have all these things going for them, Paul, our examples today, it's kind of interesting that, um, that Paul would set this up and, and, and boast in himself in a sense, even though he said not to. And so why would he do that? And why would he have this whole section that takes up quite a few verses in this section of boasting in himself? And I believe the answer lies um, when we move on into verses 7 and 8. And so there he says, But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He goes on to say that everything is a loss to him. So not only his gains, but everything is a loss to him in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so all that he has boasted about, his so-called credentials, are now, now garbage to Paul. And so I believe he had to lay this all out to actually name all that he had going for him just to show that it's all garbage. He had to show how much he had going for him because the effect is, I give that all up. It's nothing to me, even though it might be impressive to someone reading about him. He considered all that he had accomplished garbage in, relate, in comparison to the gift of knowing Christ. 
through Paul's experience with Christ, he realized that his reliance on himself and his actions to become righteous blinded him to the need for the righteousness that God offers through Christ. And this is the best kind of righteousness. So I looked at the message version of this. And sorry, Steve, I know you think it's Jar Jar Binks, but (laughs) if you guys were here last week, um, I think the message sums it up pretty well um, when it says that Paul doesn't want the inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules. He wants the more robust kind, the kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. And so it's this abiding, it's this rest in God's faithfulness that Paul wants, and it's what God ultimately wants for each of us. And there's no way that we could ever attain this righteousness on our own, and we see this throughout God's redemptive story, where people have failed at this, and yet it is God's faithfulness that has provided the way for us to be righteous through Christ. So our confidence is in his faithfulness and not in our own. And so I I stole this line from a song, our confidence is in his faithfulness. I just found it very fitting for today that our confidence rests in how faithful he is. And this is the amazing news. This is the good news. That this is all the rejoicing that Paul talks about throughout his letter. This is what we can rejoice in, no matter what happens here. Verse 9 in the NLT says, For it's God's way of making us right with himself, and that depends on faith. And so it is out of this place that Paul wants us to experience Christ fully. He wants to experience Christ fully once he has made space by discarding his credentials and getting out of his way, his own way. And I love that in verse 9 where we have been made right. We have been made right with God. And that's another way to look at righteousness. And I love this version of it. We are right with him. And so when Paul gets out of his own way, Paul can then proceed to fully know Christ in his death, his suffering, and his resurrection that he speaks of in verse 11, verses 10 to 11. And this has become the place where Paul abides. But he doesn't only stay. He goes and does Christ's work out of this true identity of being right with God, one who is right with him. And so what does this mean for us today? Our passage today shows Paul's confidence was in God's faithfulness. And it wasn't in anything that he could have ever done. Circumcision doesn't save him. Knowing the law inside out doesn't either. And God's faithfulness is the good news. And so we see how that changed his life. And not only that, we see how it changed how he served and loved people. And the good news is that we can rest in this faithfulness. His faithfulness has made us, each and every one of us, right with him. And ultimately, he's made it right, us right with each other. So a good friend once pointed out the lyrics to the song, Do It Again, and they've always stuck with me. You made a way when there was no way. And friends, this is the kind of God who is with us. When all else failed, he provided the way to make us right with him. And I believe that it is out of this space that we can continue to have 
impact in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our relationships. I've seen how we as North Point have served those around us very well. And I've seen how we've all and each of us been lights to the world, as Steve talked about last week. And these are all really good things. But as I listen to God this week, I sense that God wants us to ask ourselves if in all the good things that we're doing, can we do them even better? And I think us being better or serving better has something to do with where our confidence rests. And is his faithfulness enough for us? Or do, do we live out of a self-reliance mode? Do we tell ourselves, yeah, we've got this, because we've carried it all these years. We've carried it for so long that we're the experts in our story. And do we tell ourselves we know how to navigate our lives and situations better than anyone else could, and to let go of our expertise would be just too scary. And so I encourage us to think of what that means for us today as we go about our day and our interactions with others. When you're at work, what does putting our confidence in his faithfulness look like as we manage people, as we talk with them? Is it too scary to ask God and trust him for a word or picture that could bless someone there? And when you're caring for and loving on your kids at home, what does it look like to live and serve out of a place where your confidence is in his faithfulness? Does it cause anxiety for you to let your kids go and trust God to help you raise them? When we are with friends or family and there's conflict, What does it look like to love them out of a place of full reliance on his goodness? Or do we say to ourselves, oh, we know how to deal with them. We can trust in ourselves because after all, we're the ones that lived with them day in and day out. And so Paul found the good news. His confidence can rest in God's faithfulness. And so my question to all of us as we um, close this morning is how would more confidence in God change our lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you again for your word. And Father, you know the places in our hearts and in our minds where we need to, to be changed and be transformed by just the mere knowledge of your faithfulness. You've proven time and time again your faithfulness to us. And so, Father, we, we ask for boldness, we ask for courage to let go of what we might be hanging on to, something that gets in our way of fully experiencing your faithfulness today. We ask that we would have the courage to get out of our own way so that we can make the way to you, the ultimate way that can help us love others and to be better in ourselves in the greatest way. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, your presence, and your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen.